Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found the probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. And by FundraiseForYou.net. FundraiseForYou.net provides solutions to coaches and athletic organizations that need to raise money for their programs. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside Men's Division II Coach of the Year, recent national championship winner, and now the head coach of the women at Loyola Marymount University, Chris Shamides. Uh, today on OTB, we catch up with a crowd favorite here on the show, Paul Carr. Paul is known throughout the soccer community as the stat guru. Uh, I met Paul when, uh, when over the ball was over at ESPN. I think he was really underutilized over there. I used to put him on the air all the time because he knows his stuff. Uh, but, uh, but he moved on. I guess he didn't have a, uh, a Hispanic or English accent, so he was out the door over at ESPN. Their loss, as he is now the director of content for True Media, as well as a researcher for CBS and Fox Sports. He, uh, he always, Chris, has, always has these wild stats that are so interesting to hear. You know, uh, I think one of the reasons I gravitated towards soccer was there, there were not stats like baseball, RBIs, and ERAs, and all that stuff. But what you realize as a coach, and I'm realizing now as a former player, that like a lot of this stuff makes a lot of sense. There's, uh, there's some definite things to be mined out of all these, these uh, research data points. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to talking to Chris and getting uh, to you, Chris, to, to Paul and getting his insights on to World Cup qualifying the U.S. men's national team, maybe a little bit of MLS stuff. So, uh, so big, um, you know, heart in our throats soccer watching. We cannot miss this World Cup. Uh, Where did you watch the game, Chris, and what did you do this weekend? Yeah, I was busy watching games. My kids had games. I uh, had some work to do and I had to watch games. So I had to watch these, the USA games on uh, DVR. I had to record them and then to just kind of text out to my friends, do not let me know the score. Uh, and and then uh, come home and just go in the go in the couch in a silo and and just watch it in real in, in a recorded time. That's you know I, I always get mixed emotions. I travel so much that I have to do that all the time, but I don't enjoy it as much. I like the live moment. You know, I'm always like getting ready to watch the Liverpool game or something, uh, and it's like you know it comes across somehow in a tweet or Instagram or something. So you got to stay off your computer and your phone and everything else, but. There's something about watching it live. You do not know what the hell is going to happen. And, boy, the national team games, uh, as I said, I was, I was in Texas uh, over the weekend and watching the games in Austin and then in, in uh, Fort Worth. And uh, I, I got it just, you know, the places were going crazy. It's just wonderful to see, especially in, like, kind of football country. Everybody's like, well, that's football country, but it's not really. It's soccer country, too. All these great players on the U.S. men's national team coming out of Dallas, a lot of these players. Yeah. And where did you watch the games in Texas? Where, how, did, like, how did you find which place to go? Well, Adrian Healy, who's been on the show, he's the GM over at, um, at Austin FC. He gave me a couple of names, uh, a couple of places, and I found Haymakers, and I just I loved it. And you know what? It was interesting, and I, I don't even know. You know, it was like maybe 90% Hispanic in the club, uh, in the bar, and they were all for the United States. Interesting, yeah. yeah so it was yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, and that's why I say, like, sometimes – 
ESPN or CBS or Fox, whenever they have the games on, there is such a huge Hispanic community that follows these U.S. national teams uh, that I don't think the ratings are always fairly represented in the English-speaking market. Because mm. um, yeah, And one thing that was interesting, when I was in Fort Worth watching the game, uh, one, of the, one of the commercials was in Spanish. So, um, you know, look, the big dog is NFL football. And I was hanging out with NFL football I, football players all weekend they're still not interested in soccer even when their kids play it's unbelievable i did a i was doing a benefit for spinal cord research for this guy ken waldrip who was a, a tailback at tcu 19 year old guy looked like a male model was just a stud on campus and broke his neck and never walked again uh he died a couple of weeks ago but they've they have a benefit every year for spinal cord research and so it, it's wonderful uh but it's a comedy benefit right so they, they bring up the people come up in the chairs and they're talking about how they've overcome such terrible misfortune and, and mm. the hope that this fundraiser has given them and spinal cord research. And you're, you're crying listening to these stories of these amazing people and what they've overcome and continue to overcome. And then they say, <laughs> it's time for comedy. Yeah. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> you just got to go up and it's just... It's Two guys horrible. walk into a bar. Right? Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's just like, it's like this, maybe a good 10 minutes of like, wow, really shifting gears. It's like, yeah. hey, that didn't work. That didn't work. And finally, people start to loosen up. And they're, they're, they're great. We raised a lot of money. But yeah, it's always, it's always tough uh, with comedy. As we can see with Chris Rock, my God, getting my slapped. My goodness. How did you feel about that? Just from like the purest of a performer on stage, obviously a line is crossed. But like, how do you look at it as a comic? 20 lines were crossed. Man, yeah. was I pissed. Man, yeah. was I pissed. And I tell you what, I would have jacked him back, uh, no doubt, if someone rushes me on stage, which has never happened. Uh, I've had words with people, you know, from the stage, but no one's ever come up to me and slapped me. That sense of entitlement. Talk yeah. about white privilege. He had it. Uh, <laughs> and, I t and I tell you what, I, th I think if, if Brad Pitt went up there and slapped him, he would have been asked to leave. And he well, didn't. How do you feel about how Chris Rock handled it? Amazing. I think yeah. only a stand-up comedian with years of experience like that and poise, an actor would have turned tail, cried, and run off the stage. Right. Not known what to do. Right. But comics are badasses, and we've, we've handled every situation known to man, and Chris Rock kept his composure, stayed in the pocket, kind of looked around, was like, wow, could you believe what just happened? And he was the sole purpose that show continued to keep running. And my was feeling gonna, was, yeah. you, there was a doorman there at Gotham Comedy Club in New York City or at the Improv in Los Angeles. That dude who slapped you is yeah. out of there. He's right. getting arrested. Right. Not given an award and then a standing ovation by all the Hollywood elite. Bullshit, man. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, I look, I'm not you. So I, like, I, all I know is little dumb things like the show must go on. But man, that would have derailed the show pretty quickly. But you're right. Only a pro like that could have kept it going. Credit to him. Yeah, he did. And, and uh, I think... I think Will Smith is struggling, to tell you the truth. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, but the pressure was sounded like he was going to win the Oscar anyway. I don't know if that's pressure, but, you know, the whole year, two years with his wife, I mean, all the things, she slept with rappers, and you know, they have an open marriage, and it's all public. And Amy Schumer makes a joke about that. And then, mm. the, you know, the alopecia joke, not even... Not even thinking maybe Chris Rock knew that she had alopecia, because I think if he did know, as a comic, I wouldn't say anything uh, if you do know that. But that's, a, that's not even a funny joke. That's kind of a thing comics always do. 
you be you know person sitting in the front row and you're like ah oh, you know uh, professor so and so from you always say that when they look like somebody hey it's great to have Eric Clapton here at the show right like, but this like one's character. but this joke's written though right like he had it they had to know her situation was right I think he looked from backstage and said oh she she's got this ball you know the shaved head so I'm gonna make that joke with the GI Jane two joke yeah yeah uh, you and, don't think that was scripted. Not necessarily. Oh, not necessarily. Wow. Okay. And I think sometimes you have writers and comics backstage who are saying, hey, man, she's bald. Uh, you know, she shaved her head. And, you know, how great did she look? She's beautiful. With yeah. That thing. You know, right. it's like she's a gorgeous woman. No one would ever think like, oh, you have to shave your head. I'd be like, wow, what a knockout uh, yeah. with a shaved head. So I hope he didn't know that she had alopecia. But I don't think um, that's just a that's like a one off joke that comics do all the time. Somebody looks like somebody and you just say it gets it's an easy laugh. And I tell you what. He got a couple of laughs. He said something to Denzel, you know, um, and again, Amy Schumer said something. So it was just, it was so upsetting. So, uh, so lacked dignity and everything and grace. And then for people to defend it is just like, how? Yeah. Well, he was defending his wife. That's like saying, you know, uh, Zidane was defending his mother and sister's honor when he headbutted the guy in a World Cup final. No, you asshole. You have to right. control your emotions and, you know, you take your licks just like everybody else. What are you, a big superstar? Nobody can say anything about you? Give me yeah. a break. Poor yeah. comics. He had the comics up in front of a, millions of people trying to make them laugh, which is the hardest, hardest skill in the world. And then this entitled asshole goes up and slaps him. I would have punched him. I definitely would have punched him back. And that, would end, and that would have ended the show. That would have ended the show, but yeah. Chris, right, Chris would have been, we all would have understood it, you know? Wow. So, and, and anyway, it's, uh, so, um, yes, I watched the Oscars there too, but um, boy, watching the, the game uh, the other night in the U.S., uh, they came out big. They had to play big. They, I think they should have had a win in Mexico, gotten that monkey off their back, and uh, Christian Pulisic missed a, I wouldn't say a sitter, and it took an odd hop. Uh, from on an odd field that didn't seem like it was in good condition and i tell you what the the mexican team didn't seem like they were in a good position they're just not they're just not mexico right no now. it's not a great mexican team it hasn't been for a while this this cycle has just not been the strongest cycle but i, I think lala said this the other day alexi lala says that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to have a good world cup you know there's still a lot of right. time you know there's, there's still a lot of time between having to play at the end of the year and so you never know how a group can morph for the good or for the bad. In this case, most likely for the better they can get. I think qualifying yeah. will get a big uh, relief for them and get get them there. But yeah. it didn't seem right. And honestly, a part of it is the atmosphere. Like the U.S. is lucky. They, they get to play Azteca in a borderline half-empty Azteca. And so the atmosphere is much different. Um, yeah. I was a That's... little nervous at the end when they changed tactically and, and, and you know, went into their went onto their heels just to close it out and bring on the extra defender. I just I just felt like that suited Mexico actually. Yeah. And, the possession and, possession game and Yeah, and there was all of a sudden a couple of chances that maybe they weren't getting during the course of the game. I, I kinda understand it. Like we were fatiguing a little bit and so the game started to open up and the worst case was a loss. So they just tried to hold on for the tie, which they which they did. Um, you know, positive disappointment as they say. I think that's a that's a good way to kind of phrase it a yeah. point a point in azteca you take it every single time absolutely uh and it allowed us to survive and get to the next step which was panama we took care of business just knowing the way they play though uh it just they the three points was within their grasp tata Matino, the, i feel bad for him because boy he's aging quickly that is not a job you know you talk about all the criticism that uh, burhalter gets here in the states nothing like the like the criticism you get when you're coaching the Ma Mexican national team, and it's it's always the coach's fault, as you know, Chris. As a coach, it's like yeah, you know, yeah. 
Yeah, but he's been for- at, think about his resume though, like, you know, his CV in the, in the Argentina and Barcelona and all these different places that he's been, you know, I always say this in, in, in whenever we get together, it's like the thick skin that these coaches have. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make it easier, but they're resilient in those ways, but it just mm-hmm. seems like it's like Mexico right now was a car that can't, the engine doesn't necessarily turn over. And yeah. I think he's trying different things and he can't quite get it going. They're, they're just going to be relieved to qualify and then hope that they can appear different in a couple of they, months. They play well in the world cup. They always do. And yep. I tell you what, you, you talk about not making the world cup Italy. That Italian team, the same Italian team that did not qualify, potentially could have won the World Cup easily, right? It's just when they didn't come to play that day. And that's completely Italian. It's completely Brazilian, where you kind of do what you need to do to kind of win, and then you kind of move along. But I think they were shocked that they were eliminated. Uh, Yeah. I mean, what's brutal is Jorginho had the penalty kick against Switzerland at the end of the group play. That literally, if he hits the penalty kick they're in the World Cup directly qualified, and he doesn't hit the, the penalty kick. They now finish second in the group. Now they go to these playoffs, and worst-case scenario happens. So now you're looking at bookend missing two World Cups with winning a Euro in between. It, it's, it just speaks to the, the parity in the world right now. I think as, as things have gotten more global, uh, the, the, the players and the markets for players, you're used to getting players from every country who are able to play in good leagues. And right. so the, the gap is shrinking, and we're seeing that when these kinds of results happen, where North Macedonia gets a 1-0 result. You know, that, that's going to happen every now and then. And for Italy, it was the worst nightmare. Let's get back to the States, because I, I thought of you the other day when they were talking about some of the younger players that came along, and you're really aware of all these young players coming up. You look at them, you've, you've um, sort of uh, spotted them for MLS and um, different leagues. One of our mutual friends, Dave Sarakin, he took over the national team for a while. Great coach, mm-hmm. great motivator. Players love him. Uh, they talked about a couple of the players that he brought along in our deepest and darkest period, which was after we didn't qualify for Trinidad, you know, for the World Cup, losing to Trinidad-Tobago. Um, talk about that a little bit, about Dave Sarakin's approach when, when there was nothing to lose and he gave these young guys, like Tyler Adams, a shot. Yeah, I mean, I think Dave deserves credit in the sense that I think he served U.S. soccer well during his stint uh, in in that he said, look, this is not about me right now. This is about bringing in this next generation. And, you know, Dave knows Chris Armas and Jesse Marsh and Tyler was coming up. Tyler Adams was coming up through the Red Bulls and was aware of those guys, was aware of that group. And he was a name that was a good young player. And so he just came out and said, I'm going to give all these young guys a chance because this is the next generation, obviously, and see which names end up sticking. And as things evolved and Greg ultimately took the job, Greg just took it one step further and said, well, we're going to make this whole group stick and just kind of get let go of some of the older players and go with the younger ones. So those like those games where they cut their teeth with Dave Sarakin, those were really helpful because it gave them international experience and that Greg, Greg benefited from that. And all of U.S. soccer benefited from that now that we're at the back end of the cycle. So that's one of the strange things. You know, we talked about it last week, the, Youth is huge in World Cup qualifying because you don't have many days to sort of recover. And then the, the level of play at the World Cup, it, it kicks it up even above a professional level, you know, uh, in, in these leagues. One thing that is apparent is we do have depth. We finally have depth as a U.S. team. And that's with having pushed out pretty much every old player. Um, you know, this is the struggles that some of the, the, nas- the women's national team had. Some of the players are around for lo- a couple of cycles, and now they're sort of going through that now. What is the challenge as a coach when you have so many players? Because 
you know, I always say professionally at that level, guys are being paid well. Uh, you're really managing personalities a lot of times. Because if you only have 11 great players, you got one or two subs, you're pretty much done. You, you coach them all week, and then you put them out there to pasture and see what they can do. But what is it like, uh, and, and have you ever had any experience with that, like trying to coach a big pool of players, how to keep them motivated and deciding who gets on the pitch? Yeah, I mean, you, you try to create a vision for what is the path and how we as a group need to get over the horizon. So, you know, in, in these situations where you have multiple games in shorter windows, it's a little bit easier, to be honest, for a coach when there's three games in that amount of time. I, I actually think it's it, it just gives you that built-in excuse to rotate players. So I think it was harder back in the day when you didn't have that because you truly had to select players and some were not going to play. But right. now you can easily point to the schedule and say, we need to manage minutes, so therefore we need to kind of take you out here or play you less there. It almost like self-manages a little bit. But at the end of the day, you still have to communicate in advance and let players know what's going to be ultimately expected of them and what the plan is over the course of three days. So there's going to be game by game. And as much as you know, the staff will probably talk about, hey, we're going to handle this game by game, there's also a three-game plan. And that's going to be the same thing in group play. Like once did we find out what the draw is, assuming that we qualify, knock on wood. Yeah. Uh, when we find out what the group play is, they'll quickly begin to scout those three opponents in group play for the World Cup and then develop what their three-game strategy is going to be for who's going to play in which games based on matchups, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting, because this does seem like a real team. They, I, I got to give it to Greg, man. He's really done. Uh, he's brought these guys together. They're all saying the right things in the press and about each other. They all seem to be happy to be playing. Uh, and accept whoever comes in. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to sound cynical, but I, I think once you make the decision to go all young, then there's less to manage. They're all happy to be there. And of course, management is key to all of it. And, and I don't want to you know, make it sound like this is a negative thing, but it, it's easier. It's harder when there's you know, the big horses in the locker room, the chiseled veteran, because that, that's going to require more massaging and more of a of a communication when you have different guys at different stages of their careers. But for all these guys, this is going to be their first world cup, all of them, all of them. So with that being said, like it's easy to kind of bring them all onto the same page because they don't have expectations besides just dying to qualify and then seeing where the chips fall from there. They're young. So, you know, he, he's got that advantage that's built in with them all being younger. It would be a lot harder if you have an array of players over across the different stages of their career. That's a great point. And I think that's, it's hurt coaches before in the past. I mean, I guess if a, if a Michael Bradley was still on the pitch with the guys or Josie Altidore, you're, so much history there, you know, the guys are looking at them for inspiration or advice instead of the coach, who knows? Um, that's something interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. But you know, what, what the real question is, what is best for us soccer? Like what is the best pool of players for this team? The easiest choice to make is to just choose all the young ones like that. That would be easiest, but what would make the team best? You know, that's, that's the exercise that really needs to happen. Well, I think a lot of the times it's the dovetail, the old players dovetail out as sort of with as the new players kind of come in. And I think with the quarantine and the COVID situation, that didn't really happen. It seems to have benefited us because the young guys all stepped in, 22 of them or, or so, or 27 of them. Um, mm -hmm. Who has who really surprised you? Happened the Panama game because the boys came out to play. Um, who has surprised you in qualifying the most uh, coming out of nowhere, really? Well, I don't know about coming out of nowhere. I have this, uh, this, this thing with, uh, with Robinson, with, with Jedi Robinson. as, as he, Jedi, as he I know. Uh, yeah, you know, th there's so many plays I feel like he leaves on the table, but then there's so many plays that he makes, you know, and so you got to yeah. give him some credit for that. 
Uh, he's a part of things in terms of, uh, you know, creating chances for the U for U.S. And I think Paul might speak to this when he comes on. But, you know, this idea that, you know, what he brings to the table, he's so quick and pacey. Yeah. Um, it's not it's, it's not a matter of every decision being correct. He's maybe not the most efficient player, but he creates so many chances that it's an interesting uh, balance there. You know, how do you play with him and and how he affects the team in a positive way in the attacking half? Because there were stages of qualifying where they had a hard time scoring goals. And when they have scored goals, he's typically been a part of it. So you need to unleash him in that way. But like I always say, there's still going to be the, the, the million-dollar question, which is we're going to play a tough team in the World Cup who's going to pin us in. And we're going to have to be good in low block defending. And that's going to be a question is, are we going to be sharp enough with our movements defensively in our final third? Well, I, he's grown on me. I'll tell you that because I wasn't a big fan early, but he's got wheels. He gets caught out of position sometimes, but he recovers well. Sometimes loses the handle on the ball a little bit, but he's got that sort of uh, that speed. And he, he seems to have space too. A lot of times they're, they're picking up somebody else. And so he gets to move forward with the ball and he does quite effectively yeah the, uh, yeah i was just gonna say the other guy is delatore delatore like where whoa. did he come from like i mean he he's the kind of guy that you don't always notice but he was doing all kinds of things off the ball and on the ball against panama yeah i think a different profile than what we just talked about with robinson in the sense that he he is very efficient you know he's got good movements sharp movements delivers a ball different weighted passes different timing different spaces i think he's got a very good all-around game he's smart he understands where he's at. You know, Robinson has so many physical qualities that Delatore maybe doesn't. So Delatore is smart enough to kind of adjust his game accordingly. And I thought he was a big bright spot for the USF. Absolutely. And my big favorite is Zimmerman because I think he's just a team leader. Doesn't lose a ball in the air. Uh, even when he's getting bridged and everything else, it's, it's been pretty amazing to watch. And then, man, I've never seen anybody grab somebody by the neck like that twice yeah, 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 yeah. the same thing you know had him by the throat i mean and they're teammates dude yeah. they're teammates it's hysterical yeah, yeah. i mean the, the idea of, of of getting two cracks at it i don't know like if you get if you do one and the whistle doesn't blow I, you do it again i mean in the day of var i, I don't huh. know how that happens i mean i i bet all the chisel veterans are laughing out there saying like that used to happen all the time and we just wouldn't get those calls right but nowadays you can fall down and and Use your hands to point to VAR, and they'll go check it. Uh, VAR is going to help the United States because we get homered by in these crowds and you know playing away all the time with these referees. They just everybody's got it in for the USA. I'm telling you, so it was uh, it was good to see. So all right, well uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk to stat guru Paul Carr. You listen to over the ball. All right, welcome back to Over the Ball, everybody. Remember, you can call or text us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. And I'm glad I gave that number because uh, our next guest is a guy that people always ask me to ask him questions. Uh, joining us now on Over the Ball, he is the director of content for True Media as well as the researcher for CBS and Fox. I love when he shares his statistical insights with us. Uh, Chris, this guy is the guy you wanted to cheat off of uh, on the big quantum <laughs> physics exam. Paul Carr, welcome back to Over the Ball, man. How are you? Uh, thanks, Kevin. Good to talk to you. I, I can neither confirm nor deny that someone cheated off me in school. <laughs> school. Well, I, don't know. I would have found you. Uh, maybe, hey, buddy, want to take my SATs? I'd like to go to Cape Cod Community College. That's a yes. That's a yes. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, so Paul, uh, qualifying, how did we stack up uh, as far as the numbers are concerned? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. You know, 
we're a game left and us still hasn't clinched at this point but the underlying numbers suggest you know it was a really good campaign for the us they you know you look at obviously goals expected goals shots these kinds of things where you're generating and conceding offensively and defensively and there's clearly a big three it's the three north american teams canada us mexico but us really is on top uh the, the expected goal difference, basically, you know, based on the shots the U.S. takes, based on the shots they conceded, on average, U.S. is going to outscore opponents by about 14 goals. Canada and Mexico are a little bef- below 10 each in expected goal difference. Uh, and it's really defensive, defensively where the U.S. shined. Under nine expected goals, they've given up eight goals. So, you know, those numbers are right in line. So it just suggests, you know, the defense is just more together than it has been the last couple of cycles. Uh, Canada's maybe running a little bit hot. You know, Milan Borjan also playing very well in net, saving some goals that way for Canada. But Canada probably running a little bit hot defensively. Uh, so, yeah, so the numbers I'll say, this is, has been a, been a very successful U.S. campaign. I know it's more dramatic than any of us wanted it to be. Uh, but the U.S. is in good shape, assuming, you know, something insane doesn't happen in Costa Rica. And the numbers uh, back up that the U.S. has been pretty good. Yeah, don't say that. I mean, I, I, <laughs> no. I, I see the U.S. Chris, you know, as a coach, don't you think those boys are going down there to win, to really leave it on the field? Yeah, you have to. I mean, one is the culture of the program, you know, in CONCACAF especially, is, is that we, we have to go for wins. You know, we have to go for that and play in that way. But there's also the consistency of messaging. You know, you, you don't want to be playing for a tie or playing not to lose by six or, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, if Costa Rica scores a touchdown, then we have to at least score three. So maybe <laughs> if, we, if we hit the field goal to their touchdown, we're still qualifying. Yeah. So we're all right. And you I know, think there's, I should say, there's, I think there's something to, you know, while the U.S. has the berth about wrapped up, a lot of these guys on the team don't necessarily have a spot wrapped up. So they're still, in a way, playing for their spot on that plane. You know, this game alone isn't going to decide it, but it's they still have something to show. They don't even know if they'll get another chance to wear the U.S. uniform this year. You, you just don't know. So they still have something to play for, even if the team on the whole has a little bit less. That's a great point, Paul, because I remember in last qualifying when – uh, t- when they played TNT, they were said, ah, they're all just going to, they haven't qualified, so they're going to dump all their young players on the field. I'm like, oh no, oh no, that's a problem because they're incredibly motivated for the next cycle, you right. know, to, to, get, to get fired up. You know, one team, you know, it, it is interesting you mentioned this um, about they're doing well, but they still have not qualified and it's the last game. So it's been this push-pull, this sort of uh, speedball of emotions that most soccer fans have had, uh, even though they're playing while they're not in. Canada, has come out of nowhere, though. Yeah. Uh, it, what does that graph look like? You must have the, the like the Russian ruble up and down uh, from fr- from down to up. I would imagine with Canada, their numbers they're playing out there at their yin yang. Yeah, I mean, like I said, their numbers are just a, a notch behind the U.S. You know, their FIFA ranking, which is, is something, it's not nothing. Uh, has you know, it's down into the I think it's in the forties. 40-ish or something, and it was you know closer to 100 a couple years ago. So it, that's just kind of a, you know one example of how fast they've moved. I think it's just faster than we all expected, right? You know, we thought they're hosting in 26. Uh, we see these young talent starting to come through. Uh, that's going to be where the where they'll make it. But I think just the combination of they're a little out of schedule. All this talent developed faster. I think Costa Rica and Panama both kind of got stuck between generations a little bit. And maybe that younger generation didn't take a step as quickly as possible. Yeah. I don't think it's a fluke. I don't, I wouldn't want to draw Canada out of that fourth pot probably in the world cup, 
uh, they could put a scare into anybody. So yeah, they're, they're playing really well. They have the confidence. John Herbin's got them uh, looking good. The numbers look solid. Uh, I'm, I'm excited just as a kind of a CONCACAF fan. It, it's great to have another team uh, to root for in the region that looks like they can take on the big boys. Oh, yeah, we got guys to our north, Chris, and we got guys to our south. We were talking about it earlier before we got on that, you know, MLS uh, has given a lot of these players opportunities from El Salvador, from Costa Rica, from Canada to come and play in a domestic league and play year round and become professionals. And now we got to play them. <laughs> and you be careful what you wish for. Yeah. You know, and, and Chris, what is it? You've, do you know this Canadian coach at all? Uh, because he's got those guys motivated. He's got them believing. I think he came from the women's side. Yep. Yeah, I don't know him personally, but yeah, I mean, he's going to be, I believe, the first coach to ever take uh, a men's team and a women's team to a World Cup, and yep. uh, he did a great job of, of, and as much as the Canadian women have always been relatively strong, when he first arrived, they, they were on a down cycle, and he brought them back up, and then got a good run in the World Cup, and then now has switched over to the men's side, and it's just brought a great amount of relief, or I should say belief into them. But it's also it's catching them at a good point in their cycle where their their talent is just popping now. A lot of that is credit to MLS, but you know that they're they're in a good phase and he's got them buying in in a very big way. And uh, I mean that would be, I guess, Paul. One of my questions is when you look at some of the more powerful teams in Concacaf, are there any individuals that have like you know from a statistical point of view, from a data point of view, that have kind of pushed a team forward? Like, hey, when this player plays, this team does a little bit better. Have you noticed anything like that? Some of the things that jump out to me, just sticking on the Canada side, I mean, Alfonso Davies, Tejan Buchanan, I think anybody who you watch them for 10 minutes and those guys will tend to jump off the page with their speed and the way they go at players. And it bears out in the numbers in that those two, even though Davies has missed half the final round, almost, he still leads the final round in one V ones. That's how, and Tejan Buchanan is number two. So one, two, and then you get into guys that want to say Jesus Corona from Mexico's Tecatito's number three. So those are the kind of players that those two Canadians are better than. So just, I think that's kind of a microcosm of Canada's attitude. They're going to go at you. They're willing to, they have the guys who can do it. Um, and so, yeah, those two, they're just so far ahead of everybody else. Like I said, Davey's number one, even though he's missed half the final round or so yeah. in, in the one V ones, that's, I think that's indicative of what kind of attitude Canada has. Yeah, and I think the coach deserves credit for putting them in those positions where they can maximize those kinds of things. And I, I think it's, uh, Kevin, it's uh, uh, Alfonso Davies has hit the highest speeds in Bundesliga. He's the fastest player in the Bundesliga. So, like, you know, being able to find moments to get him isolated on people and then give him the full green light to run at people, you know, that's smart of them. So the fact that Paul's mentioning that, it, it shows an efficiency that Canada has found. Well, you've been like, you know, he chases guys down. It's depressing for them. They're on a 40-yard break, and he catches them. And the thing is that I have noticed, we've all played with guys who have incredible speed, and you have to sort of measure them defensively, cut the angles down, you know, anticipate, all that stuff. I'm not used to seeing a player that fast with that much skill. That is just a lethal combination. So, you know, it's usually got that. It's like uh, uh, Yedlin. Talking about Yedlin, he's so fast, recovery speed, but he's, he never quite has the handle on the ball. Uh, you know, Alfonso Davies, he's got it. He's moving at huge speeds and still got the ball close to his foot. So uh, he's the one guy I thought the U.S. was like, holy shit, we're on our heels with this guy. I mean, nobody could defend him when he played, when we played yep. against him. Yeah. Yeah, he so. brings that speed. And we saw it with Yedlin at the World Cup against Belgium in 14. He didn't have, like you said, the handles, but he's going to make some mistakes, but he's got the wheels to make up for it. And Davies is the same, you know, times a lot. 
Times a lot, yeah. And uh, he's, I mean, the, the impact he's had in the Bundesliga has uh, been amazing. So, Chris, you asked about individual players. Before you got on, Paul, we're talking about Luca Della Torre. Kind of kind of came out of nowhere, but not really, as we all know. Uh, my big favorite has been Walker Zimmerman, just solidifying yeah. that that central uh, defending position. What, what do you got on him? I mean, subjectively, I think it's wild that was it October or November when he wasn't called in initially and then they called in as an injury replacement. And now he's probably the number one center back on the team sheet for the U S in CONCACAF. Uh, I would think maybe, I mean, yeah. he, what he brings is, I mean, it's what you would expect out of a guy who's what six, five, I think. Uh, he is dominant in the air. He has won the highest percentage of aerial duels of any player in this Ocho in the final Wait, round. I just, I'll just cut you off there. He's 6'3". So, only 6'3", so, yeah. yeah soccer so he, players, you always think soccer players are taller because so many of them are <laughs> shorter. Like, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Not Areola. Not Areola. Yeah, I'll tell you that. I remember when the U.S. played Spain at, at Gillette Stadium in 2011, I think it was. Uh, so I was there working it for ESPN. And, you know, you think of Iker Casillas as this giant, you know, just big guy. I walked right by him. I'm about 6'2", and he's six foot, maybe. He's not small, but when he's playing next to Xavi and Iniesta and all these guys, you think of them as just this giant. So you add just like two or three inches in your head at least. Um, but to the Zimmerman thing, yeah, so he's won 83% of his aerial duels, which is the highest of any player in, in the Ocho. Uh, Miles Robinson is fifth at 72%, and he's probably the number two center back on the U.S. roster right now. So, I mean, I, and I, that's important. Because it's, I mean, I hear Alexi Lawless in my head, set pieces, set pieces, set pieces, yeah. both offensively and defensively. Um, it's a strength. It's how, you know, it's how they beat Mexico in the Nations League final last summer. Uh, they've got an opportunity anytime there's a dead ball to get a gr- pretty good scoring chance and eliminate scoring chances for the other team. So, you know, if it's he and Robinson, you know, 10 months from now or whatever it is, the World Cup, then you got to take advantage of that aerial dominance. You're going to get McKinney back, you hope. He's really good in the air as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a U.S. tradition, and it's nice to have, have some guys back. who are upholding it. And again, set pieces make such a difference in a single game, a single group, whatever it might be. That one goal is enough to put you through or not. So yeah. it's good to have that on your side. And they're starting to feel it. I think they're feeling mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah, set pieces. Let's get fired up here. And you could tell. I think that's why uh, the guy was grabbing him by the throat because they knew, you know, just since October, Zimmerman's had an impact on people in the air. Yep. Watch this guy. And uh, you could tell that they would, would be shaking in their boots defending, um, you know, on, on set pieces. Chris? Yeah, I had a question, Paul. I was wondering how you would tackle this. If, if, if we, we're talking about players like Yedlin or, or perhaps Robinson, who, you know, I was saying before is like they leave – certain plays on the table that you wish they handled a little differently. Mm-hmm. But then there's also so many chances that they create because of their pace and their mobility. If you were to tackle how to like quantify that, like from the work that you do, how, how do you like, without getting too far into the nitty gritty, but how do you compute what value they bring to a team based on the plays that they make and the plays that they don't make? Yeah, it's challenging. I think one thing I think Berlter has talked about before is it dep- does depend a little bit on the opponent. You know, if you're the U.S. and you're playing Panama, Honduras, El Salvador at home, you know you're going to have a lot more of the ball. So you're looking much more at what those guys can bring to the field offensively. If it's a whatever World Cup and you're playing Germany and you know you're not going to have as much of the ball, uh, that's when, to me, I think you know you're looking a little bit more at those defensive numbers, defensive positioning. You know, something that's a little tougher to tease out of the numbers uh, where. 
maybe the U.S. gives up opportunities with a certain guy on the field when you're facing those kinds of teams. So it's definitely a challenge. I think I think the game plan and kind of the game state is a pretty important thing that that I like to look at. It coaches I think tend to look at when they're trying to figure out. You know, and it's just, it's normal coaching stuff. It's all right, we're going to play like this. So we need these kinds of players uh, to fill these holes. It's the same sort of thing. You're just trying to figure out how to calculate that. And I think every coach has a little bit of a different way if they want to try and pull numbers out. And so it's a tricky thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I see that because, you know, the thing about the USA is in our evolution, you know, we're still one of those countries where we could roll out and play against a team and dominate possession. But then there's also going to be opponents out there in the world that will dominate possession against us. Yep. And we don't really get that in CONCACAF. And yep. I keep, I keep speaking to that because, you know, there's going to be that time in the world cup, hopefully where we are playing against one of these bigger teams who will pin us in. Right. And so it's like, like a Yedlin, for example, or a Robinson, what value do they bring in transition versus a game where we have less possession or more yep. possession? And I always wonder how you would tackle that kind of a question if a coach presented. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. And I think sometimes the club where they play for the club answers that, you know, like Robinson, it won't as much because he's playing for Fulham and they're crushing the championship uh, this season. So sometimes you can get an answer there. I suspect the U.S. will try to play some of those big guns in the next few months before the World Cup. I think there was a report today that Argentina might be coming here uh, to play the U.S. this summer. So I suspect that'll be part of it. Uh, get them some experience playing without the ball a little bit more. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing to balance for sure. All right. So uh, you're the big math guy, you're the big stats guy. Let's talk a little bit of history because you got, you got a little handle on history as well. Costa Rica historically not very good for the United States. Talk about that a little bit. What do we expect when we go down there? I mean, just broadly speaking, it's wild. I mean, it's every time I look, it's worse than I remember. Like, so the U.S. has never won. <laughs> my, first, my first marriage right there. <laughs> uh, U.S. has never won on the road against Costa Rica. 11 games, nine losses, two draws. Uh, most of those are World Cup qualifying, nine losses and a draw in World Cup qualifying. U.S. has lost eight straight down there by a combined 15 to two. And the last five wins for Costa Rica down there have all been by two plus goals. Now, all that to say, you know, even in the worst case scenario, U.S. lost 4-0 there in the hex last time. And that was maybe the worst U.S. game I've ever seen. Yeah. That's the one that got Klinsman fired. The wheels came off the bus on right. that one. And even yeah. that, that was 4-0. I mean, obviously this is different because maybe Costa Rica is going to press. Uh, but, I mean, the U.S. hasn't lost by six goals since 1979. That was a friendly right. against France, a giant stadium, actually. Um, and they have lost by six in a game that mattered, like a competitive game, since I think it's 1957 oh, against Mexico. I, I, so, I mean, I, yeah. it's not going to happen. Um, the other X factor, nine Costa Rica players are on a yellow card entering this game. And if they get another yellow, they would be suspended for the first leg of the playoff. I don't, okay. I don't know what that means, but I suspect there might be a few guys that they yeah. either don't play or play a little bit less just because... It's such a microscopic chance oh, of winning by uh, six, six or more goals. That's a great they, question. Yeah, that really rather, is. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think of that. Yeah. yeah, They'd rather be healthy for that playoff against presumably New Zealand than play for that, you know, one in a bajillion chance that they could win this one by seven. Which and without, it, without certain happen. players. Yeah. And right. Chris, that falls into the coaching sort of thing because it was like Burhalter saying people were asking him, do you put a competitive team out against Mexico? Which I thought was a, a an, an asinine question. I mean, I understood why, but like right. – you go to win, you play to win, and you got to have that mentality. But uh, let's say you're the United States coach, Chris. What do you do with this? Do you, do you try to absorb pressure for the first 20 minutes, or you just come right out and, and, uh, and go at them? 
Yeah, no, I think with the U.S., I mean, look, I mean, coaching is, is it's, it's less about results and more about process in that sense. And so you want to keep the group consistent with your process. So they're going to play. I don't think there's going to be a drastic tactical change. I don't think they're going to sit in like they did the last 10 minutes against Mexico. I don't think doing 90 minutes like that makes any sense. That's just too far into who we are and what he's built over these last few years. So I think it's going to be more an exercise for them. What I think the more interesting question is what Paul brings up before – for Costa Rica, like, do they come out in the first full one? Do they just rest all those yellows and just go full blast in the, in the playoff? Or do they come out with their best group and take the first 15, 20 minutes, press all over the place, see if they can do something crazy and jump out to a two, three Oh lead and see if there's a chance in the second half, or do they just play it out in a more vanilla style? I think that'll be really interesting to see, but USA, they're not going to change anything. They're going to do everything the same exact way for all the reasons that, the, the group needs another rep, another pressure situation on the road, give them some more experience. And also what Paul says, guys need to show themselves for the, for the final roster. That's true. I think that's the biggest point, Paul, that you made about some of these guys want a spot on the roster and, and they're hungry. Uh, yep. So, all right, man. So, well, it's a Wednesday night game. I, I tell you, a big lump in my throat will be gone when, if we qualify and when we qualify, hopefully. So, um, we'll all be watching with uh, bated breath there. All right, Paul. So uh, we're going to ask you some speed round questions. So you ready? These are non-statistical related. Okay, um, I'm ready. All right. Favorite player of all time? Soccer player, right? Yeah, what else did you go? What, what, right. Tell us what other sport. I mean, the you want Bob? me to go with Frank Wyatt, Royal second baseman from my childhood, or Dan Marino? Uh, Oh, wow. You know what? Hey, can I, I know Frank White, and I don't like Frank White. I don't know the uh -oh. guy personally. He's probably uh -oh. a great guy, but I'm a Yankee fan, and I love Ooh. Willie Randolph. Oh, yeah. Frank White used to always beat out Willie Randolph for the, for the All-Star game, and That's I'm right. like, I don't know who this Frank White guy is, but I don't like him. And now you're bringing him up all these years later. <laughs> oh. I'm scarred for life. Oh. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> He's the one doing those commercials with Flutie, right? No. no, Frank White, not, not famous no. enough nationally, unfortunately. Oh, different guy, Frank White. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not, uh, Frank Thomas. Is that Frank, Frank Thomas, that's who it is. Yeah, yes. yeah. Get my yes. Franks messed up. Yes. Um, all right, so favorite player, soccer player of all time? Uh, so I, um, I, I tend to go with Wayne Rooney, which is kind of maybe an odd choice, but I just always liked his versatility. Obviously, he's got some attitude. Uh, you know, he'll come at you, but I liked, you know, he was a nine. He was dropping back into a 10. They played on the wing for a while. I was kind of able to do everything. I always thought he was harangued by the English media. Like, well, I guess all English players are, but uh, he's kind of, he's kind of the one I always liked a lot. Yeah. The English, I swear the press makes them lose one or two games in world cup. Every time they're just <laughs> all over the players. It's horrible. Yeah. They can't, they can't be happy ever. All right. Best player you ever played with. Oof. Um, well, my soccer career ended in like eighth grade. All right. <laughs> professional. But, uh, I That's mean, okay. it, would, it would be like, so I went to Wheaton College, which is a D3 school, and they won the national title in 97, the year before I got there. So okay. if you want to, by played with, you mean kicked the ball to once when it rolled off the field, I would pick like a Rob Mao or Eric Brown, who were like national player of the year types for Wheaton back in the late 90s. What happened to them? Where are they now? They're probably just stand up <sighs> businessmen. I know Eric, yeah, Eric's in banking or something around Wheaton. I'm not sure where Rob is now. All right. Well, we get, that's an answer. We, we like it. From a stat guy, that's pretty good. Um, go. Last actual hard copy book you actually read, soft paperback or hard copy? Uh, so I'm currently in the middle of a book called Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, which is about the making of Mad Max Fury Road. Just came out, written by Kyle Buchanan, New York Times entertainment writer. So it's about the making of that movie, which was very chaotic, tumultuous, lots of, it was just really? a, a very difficult shoot, but turned out a great movie. Good book? 
Uh, so far, so good. Yeah. If, I mean, if you like the movie and you like, you know, filmmaking and that sort of thing, it's, it's right in that wheelhouse. All right. Messi or Ronaldo? <laughs> uh, I, I will go with Ronaldo. Wow. Um, really? Why? Why? Look, there's obviously no wrong right answer or whatever. I, I like right, his right. versatility. You know, he did it with more clubs. He did it, you know, he was a nine early, moved to the wing, uh, more dominant in the air. Uh, I know he's a little bit more of a selfish player, you know, maybe doesn't make teammates as good in the same way that Messi does. But I just like to do it different ways, different places. And we've seen, I've seen more out of him. Is he better? I don't know. I would pick him on my team though. You know what? I, I respect that answer. That's a good, that's a statistical guy breaking it down. He gave us some reasoning, Chris, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what, so let me follow Kevin with your question about favorite player. Paul, who's your favorite player according to data, like expected goals and all that kind of oh, like who Somebody jump, who jumps off who the charts. Out. Yeah. It's a good, um, I don't know, someone like, like Lewandowski is a type who is just will consistently blow away his expected goals numbers. You know, not a lot of guys yeah. can do that. So it's got to be the top of the top. So just the way he's able to year after year, part of it, of course, is Byron's system and, yeah. and the way that he's a perfect fit for that. But, but he's just a fun to watch that classic nine who is always puts up even better numbers than he probably should. Let yeah. me ask you this, Paul, because you, you probably have some insight into this, the Ballon d'Or and the way they vote, they're going to mm -hmm. change it, right? Because Mo yeah. Salah showing up in like seventh or sixth or something. And then Lewandowski not winning. Why was that so off? I think part of it, I'm trying to remember the changes, but I think part of it's just like the criteria that's kind of laid out for him. Sometimes it's the timing, you know, if you're voting, you know, later in the year, you're trying to remember what happened six months ago, uh, yeah. something like that. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like when you have that broad of a base of voters, you know, you look at the voting when it's, you know, from captains and journalists and coaches from all these different countries, sometimes it's just weird voting, whether it's not as in touch with, you know, what actually happened that year. Cause it seems like they're always a year or two behind, uh, you know, yeah. maybe where it should be. So, yeah, I think sometimes it's, I think it's the, breadth of everything isn't great and they don't always give them you know how to vote what are you considering that sort of thing so yeah i think you know streamlining the process and making it a little more concise is probably a good thing yeah i think they went from the calendar year to the season to the end of a season yeah. judge it that way but with fifa you always like wondering what's going on because some of the stuff doesn't make sense one thing you mentioned before we got on air again was what pot the u.s is going to get put into talk a little bit about that yeah so the u.s is this is assuming they qualify directly and don't have to go through the playoff, but they okay. are locked Fingers into pot. Crossed. Yeah. They're locked into pot two. Uh, there was an outside shot to add a pot one, but they needed a, a handful of things to fall into place. That didn't happen, but no pot two is a good spot to be in. So, you know, pot one is your, is Qatar plus the top seven teams in, in the FIFA world rankings that will come out this week. So that's Brazil, Belgium, France, Argentina, England, Spain, Portugal, you know, more or less, the, the better teams in the world. The big boys. Yeah. So by getting into pot two though, us is in a pot with Germany and Netherlands and Uruguay and Croatia. Uh, and that just means the U S can't play those teams. So obviously yeah. there's still going to look, every group can be tough, but yeah. you're in pot two, you're going to get, you know, one of those top eight teams, Qatar would be great, but you're going to get a good team there. Uh, and then you're going to get some mix of, you know, the lower half of the teams that made it, whether it's from Africa, the bottom half of Europe, Asia, whatever. So, in a perfect world, the U S could be the second best team in the group one way or the other, you know, there's even a chance of the best if it went perfectly and you had Qatar in your group, but, but there's a real shot at being the second best team in the group on paper, which obviously just helps and gives you a better get chance to the next round. Through. Yeah, that's, that's good. Chris, anything before we let yeah. this, this math guy go? No, I mean, the, <laughs> I think the, the bringing in pod two is huge. I'm a yeah. little shocked by it. 
and, and Canada, so we're saying even though Canada could potentially win the group, they could finish in pot four because of the FIFA rankings. Right. They're, they're either, I think it's likely four and I think they have a shot at three depending on a couple of the final results. But yeah, it's, there's the way it's, it's pure FIFA rankings and, and Canada obviously until the last year or two didn't have kind of right. that, that backbone yeah. of numbers to build upon. And it was just a little bit too little, too late for Canada. But I tell you, whoever draws them, you know, Watch out. They're, they're going to throw a scare into somebody. It'll be fun. Yeah. I think, yeah. Kevin, we need uh, to get you on the voting for the Ballon d'Or. <laughs> for me, for Billy. Get that, Paul US, me? No, me. Get that uh, U.S. media vote, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, ain't happening. People, they won't even give me a driver's license, for God's sakes. Well, that, that's bad right. for everybody. All right, Paul, uh, we appreciate you coming on Over the Ball. Remember, everybody that, who asks me questions to ask Paul Carr, you, you can text us or call us at 424-229-2247. We'll have Paul on again if there's anything um, that uh, you want to look into stat-wise. Paul Carr, uh, we appreciate you joining us on Over the Ball. And, uh, yeah, talk to us again uh, as we're heading towards the World Cup um, because, boy, these, uh, these numbers don't lie. We were talking about it before you got on about how, you know, Soccer was not a, a data-driven sport, but mm-hmm. now it is. And a lot of the stuff is really making sense to, yep. to coaches. So uh, it's, just, it's such a big game, I know, especially on the recruiting side in Europe. It just helps narrow it down. You know? Maybe, you, know, you have all these leagues that you're scouting. How do you watch them all? Well, maybe this, the data can help you cut you know, 200 players down to 25, and then you go do your normal scouting and figure it out. So it's, just, it's helpful in that way. You can't watch all the games, and the data can watch all the games. It's kind of the, the cliche in the data world. The, the data can watch all the games. Listen to that. That's spoken <laughs> as a true mathematician right there. Paul Carr, True Media, thanks for joining us on OTV. We'll talk to you again, pal. You bet. Thanks, guys. Oh, God, Chris, always great talking to Paul Carr. So this is your first time uh, talking to Paul. Wasn't it interesting? Yeah, I mean, obviously having someone who looks at the game in a different way is, yeah. uh, is valuable and interesting for, for me as a coach. You know, it's, uh, I, you could spend hours with, with, with guys who do this kind of work because you, you, you learn a little bit more about what's going on in the background. Obviously, I get a taste of that with, with the work at LAFC and some of the things that they talk about when they're looking at players. Um, but it's a huge part of the landscape across sports and it's grown exponentially in soccer the last five, 10 years. So you, you were with MLS with teams all, you know, through its, you know, full course here. Um, did you see the implementation of some of the stats and some of the ways that the guys had monitoring devices that really change over the years that you were involved in major league soccer? Yeah, I mean, it's there's MLS 1.0 where we had none of that stuff. And then now, and whether you call it MLS 3.0 or 4.0, we're in, we're in a version of MLS where that is absolutely part of the everyday life in MLS. You know, the players are wearing GPS and working with the performance coaches and working with the coaching staff to dial in how much work they put into each day and over the course of a week and the periodization of all that stuff. But also just scouting of players, scouting of opponents and getting a sense for what they're going to bring to the table uh, in individually or teams collectively, how much they're running, what kind of runs from which positions. There's so many things that you can do to, to gain efficiencies. And it's, it's now obviously a big part of the scouting world as well, which is what he referred to. I always had a problem with the, the type of things, because I think I was that type of player where you're doing things off the ball that aren't recognized, goals, assists, you know, and it seems like some of these statistics, like you even talking about, you know, overlapping runs can be now could be measured that they weren't in the past. 
Yeah, there's there's ways to quantify value that a player can bring to the table. And so, you know, when and, and, and a lot of this is has to be mirrored against the context of a team's game model. You know, so certainly when the US men's national team qualify, assuming that they will, of course, I keep wanting to say that, you know, they're gonna quickly dive into the pool that they're into the group that they're in and figure out the game model of the teams that they're gonna play against. And then try to understand where the attacks are coming from, what are the strengths and weaknesses and tendencies of the individual players that they're going to be going up against, and starting to shape and modify and tweak their own game model so they can still be true to themselves, but deal with the opponent across from them. Interesting. Well, one, one step that always pissed me off, even from my indoor days playing, there was blocked shots. As a defender, it pissed me off because if you blocked a shot, that meant you're, 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 the player you're covering received the ball, he turned on the ball, he, he got a shot off and you got in front of him. And I say like, well, you want to, if you stole the pass or, or shepherded him out to the outside, you know, put him out of shooting position. So I used to say like, that was a stat where like, I, I didn't get it. I thought guys shouldn't be even letting guys get shots off. What are your thoughts on my indoor career? Yeah. I mean, your, your data analysis is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> you know why? Cause it's, it's all individual about me. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the, the motivation is you didn't like guys blocking your shots. So now we're having this conversation decades later. <laughs> As a coach, would you have cut me? Uh, <laughs> well, I would have cut you after you yeah. just simply said that. Exactly. <laughs> no, uh, honestly, like, stuff. <laughs> the blocking of shots, it, like, you have to look at it in certain ways. Like, you're right in a way where it's like, well, you know, blocking a shot means I've lost track of my guy and, and maybe that player was able to get something off that they shouldn't have. But it's more complicated than that. There's loads of times where a defender will, will cheat out of a moment to get out of a situation to come centrally and help and block a shot that maybe they shouldn't have even been in that territory. And so they deserve a lot of, they deserve a lot of credit for that. So there's context to each of those that, that need to be kind of shaved down even further. Um, and, and that's where that, that's why you have a non-coach looking at this stuff and a non-comic because yeah. you know all these all these proteins have these data people who are chewing through this to make it more uh, digestible for us as coaches so to understand where the value really is and how to look at the numbers all right well i want to throw all the data out the window uh for the game tomorrow night wednesday night against costa rica we haven't won down there in a long time i have a good feeling we might actually come out of there with a win um, that's, that's my prediction because this, these guys are young, they're hungry. Like Paul said earlier, and you concurred that these guys are hungry for a position. They want to play. They want to be impactful. Luca Delatore coming out of nowhere kind of yesterday, uh, you know, in the last game against Panama and really solidifying what he can do, uh, the composure and everything else like that. So look for more of that. Look for a big win against Costa Rica. Let's look to qualify. All right, Chris. That's all the time we have everybody on over the ball this week. Uh, join us next week. We'll have another guest talking about other stuff. And remember, give us a call. Always you can call us, leave a message, text us. Uh, Chris, you know the phone number? Yeah, it's that number you said before. 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Text or call us. We'll get you on the air. All right, everybody. For Chris Shamides, I'm Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time.